Hello and welcome to 100 Campaigns That Change the World, the podcast that examines campaigns past and present. I'm your host, Steve Tibbet, and my guest today is Fiona Weir, who is Chief Executive of the Joseph Roundtree Reform Trust. She had a, or has a stellar career in the charity sector, was the CEO of Gingerbread, um, uh, Director of Policy and Communications at Save the Children. She was at Witch and also Amnesty International. But uh, we're talking to her today about her time at Friends of the Earth, where she was an earth pollution and climate change campaigner from 1988 to 1995, and headed up the ozone layer campaign. Now, that campaign um, led to a phase-out of the products that deplete the ozone layer, like aerosols or air conditioning coolants. And you may have heard about CFCs, which are the chemicals in, in, in those products. Um, so it was a huge campaign at the time, um, very influential, very important. Uh, you know, was, wasn't Friends of the Earth on their own, but there were other organisations such as Greenpeace as well, involved as well. And it was global um, as well as UK. Fiona talks to me mainly about what happened in the UK, um, but um, also a bit about the global aspects. Um, it was a very successful campaign, as I say, and the the um, not only successful in terms of its reach and its its in, its power, but also its in, impact on uh, the the Earth. The ozone layer is officially healing, and according to NASA, at least it is. And they're saying that this year, 2018, so a long uh, time since um, the pollutants were phased out. But it's a gradual process and um, it's good to know that these things do work and the science follow through into into real real change. But the campaign was very highly regarded. It was very visible. And as she says, it was an issue that in the late 80s, early 90s, it really captured the public imagination so everyone knew about it it was on the tv in the papers almost every day and it was often on on the front pages and in the headlines so just finally to say the sound isn't great in the first half i don't know what happened um it's very annoying but um it gets better in the second half it's not as bad as um uh, one of the other podcasts that you may have listened to, but it's 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 not a hundred percent as it should be. Uh, investigating why that why that is. We'll be back in a moment with Fiona. So hello everyone, I'm here today with Fiona Weir, we're talking about the ozone layer campaign. Um, so Fiona, could you just say a bit about what the problem was that the campaign was trying to solve? Okay, so the ozone layer problem um, was one of long-lived chemicals working their way from the lower atmosphere up into the upper atmosphere, and essentially uh, through chemical reactions reducing the amount of ozone and ozone plays a vital role in protecting the Earth as a barrier to the sun's UVB rays. And so by allowing more UVB through, 
a whole series of adverse impacts from increased cancer rates, uh, effects on immune systems, effects on phytoplankton at the base of the marine food chain, effects on crops and degradation of materials. Uh, We're talking about really serious uh, threat to people and the planet. Yeah. And and, and what was the solution to that problem that you proposed or that campaigned? So the very simple solution was the blindingly obvious one, which is stop using the chemicals that are causing the problems. And of course, the chemicals were very widely used and were much loved because they weren't toxic and they were very safe to use and didn't cause other environmental problems and had become really part of daily life in aerosol sprays, in food packaging, in refrigeration and air conditioning, uh, in insulating foam, in uh, a wide range of cleaning applications for industry, cleaning electronic circuit boards, metal degreasing, um, and of course halons were widely used in firefighting. So an extraordinary degree of penetration into the daily lives of people in OECD countries. Yeah, and and so this problem had had sort of arisen, it had come up through science, but was there a a stage in the campaign where you had to kind of get the public up to speed or was it not quite so sort of uh, straightforward in that sense that you had a stage where you were uh, raising awareness and then you moved on? Well, like, like so many environmental issues, the early days are a really rough ride to get the science uh, accepted, and ozone depletion was no different. The theory was first developed in the 1970s by Roland and Molina and was very much a theory, uh, a very credible theory, but without a lot of evidence. The evidence was enough for the US to take action. They banned aerosols. Uh, it wasn't enough for the UK to take any action. Um, and in fact... Over the course of a number of years, um, the science started to be questioned and doubted by various scientists. So the Telegraph was running uh, stories with headlines like aerosol peril theory proved false. Uh, We know all these kind of things from the climate change debate today. And it wasn't really until uh, the mid-1980s that the science started to firm up. Uh, Joe Farman from the British Antarctic Survey using some pretty old-fashioned instruments um, very carefully over a two-year period established the evidence that a hole was opening up over the Antarctic, uh, an actual ozone hole, um, which absolutely grabbed the public imagination. Um, Interestingly, the NASA, the US um, Space Agency satellites hadn't picked it up um, and when they re-evaluated their own data, they realised they'd been looking at it all the time. They just ha- had to recalibrate their instruments to stop screening out uh, readings that were so low they didn't take them credibly. Um, so when the ozone hole was found, it completely grabbed public imagination. It was such a powerful visual image that there was this hole opening up that was going to let the, the sun's UVB rays through um, and that we desperately needed to protect this ozone layer um, for the sake of the planet as a whole. And, and uh, what Friends of the Earth and other environmentalists did phenomenally well was to keep the media stories rolling. Um, so we were very adept at taking some incredibly obscure and very complex scientific reports, putting it into language that people could understand, and finding really good hooks to get it talked about. 
and uh, we, we, we did it was on everything uh, Mrs Perkins in the Archers band aerosols from her corner <laughs> shop uh, we did Blue Peter I did a children's TV show with Harry Enfield a, a comedian at the time who was pretty famous who ran around spraying aerosols shouting give an Aussie skin cancer um, some of it was not very pleasant one children's TV programme wrote to us saying they'd done a quiz for children asking them what they could see from space expecting the answer to be the Great Wall of China and most of the kids had, had entered it by saying the ozone hole was what you could see from space mm. seven year olds could say chlorofluorocarbons uh, people who worked for ICI told me how upset they were at the grief their kids were giving them <laughs> Um, so we were yeah. incredibly lucky in that respect. It was relatively easy science to explain compared to, say, climate change. And the image of what was happening was dramatic and ex existential. And it really created the groundwork that meant we could have a lot of confidence that we could run a consumer-oriented public campaign and actually really get very high levels mm. of engagement and I think that's it's as I said to you earlier before we before we started chatting for this that my my eleven year old daughter actually is still aware of the issue and sort of has heard about it so so it's endured but Fantastic. just in terms of the whole uh, is that has that closed now or is it is there still uh, it, it's uh, it, it's been recovering and the other scientific concern that uh, occurred at a slightly later stage. Um, were uh, were reduced uh, levels of ozone over the mid-latitudes of the Northern Hemisphere, which obviously would have a much greater effect on population centres. Uh, that became much more important later in the debate with some of the chemicals that were, were shorter-lived because they were clearly contributing to that problem. Generally, there's been a lot of recovery, although actually quite recently there's been a few disturbing articles um, asking why it's not recovering as much as had been expected. And so we're, we're not completely in the clear yet mm. in terms of having solved this problem. It's hardly surprising. The key thing about some of the chemicals we're talking about is that CFCs, uh, some of them had lifetimes of over 100 years. So as you emit it into the atmosphere today, those impacts are going to happen for literally decades into the future. And that was what was so dangerous. Once you'd released them into the atmosphere, there was nothing you could do um, for literally decades to reduce that impact. Um, and that's why it was so urgent to really get a grip on yeah. the problem, not just of releasing new ones, but actually of dealing with disposal of you know, millions of fridges, for example, that were containing coolants and poly, you know, polyurethane foams um, that would release these for years to come. Yeah, and um, I think I'd read recently that there is some, there's some evidence there's someone or some group is still producing CFCs at some factory somewhere or some some place in Asia, but they can't quite track down. Have you heard? I, I hadn't picked that one up, yeah. but I certainly know from my experience of campaigning here that even supposedly very reputable companies um, did some things that are extraordinary. Uh, one of the things we Friends of the Earth was very instrumental in exposing. Um, was ICI dumping halons um, in developing countries like India and, and Argentina. Um, and generally the extent to which companies were trying to build new markets for chemicals that were regarded as um, 
that were you know for, for, that was legal um, because they were allowed to do so within the Montreal Protocol limit, mm. but establishing new markets for something that was clearly very damaging. Um, so I, I think uh, it's not entirely surprising um, if there is a market for them that companies yeah. will evade rules if, if they're not fully regulated. So um, just in terms of how the, the campaign itself worked and the nuts and bolts of it, and particularly how you set, you set yourself up vis-a-vis other uh, organisations. I mean, mm. you know, you were Friends of the Earth, but there was yeah. also Greenpeace, I think WWF and yeah. various others. How did you coordinate between you, and, and was there any competition between? Uh, well, in, in 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 the early days, there were two different arena. One was the domestic, one was the international. Um, I think coordination at the international level uh, was pretty good, even from a very early stage. But I have to keep reminding people, we didn't have websites, we didn't have email in these days. When when I wanted to coordinate a Friends of the Earth policy on um, phase-out of CFCs with Friends of the Earth Malaysia or Indonesia. Mm. We wrote a letter and then we waited a couple of weeks till we got a response back and then wrote back in response to their response. It was a very different world, basically. Um, In the domestic sphere, uh, Friends of the Earth, I think, was the active group in the early days, certainly the early consumer boycotts and so on. Uh, So I think we fairly heavily dominated the UK sort of early years of the debate. Um, and then Greenpeace came in with a particular focus on ICI, and I think one of the key contributions they made was the Green Fridge, mm. um, which was developed, I think, in Germany uh, and very much marketed as an, a CFC-free alternative in refrigeration. Um, and I think it was actually quite helpful in some ways that we were doing different things, so we were adding value. I think with all campaigns, um, there's a, a huge amount of competition for media coverage um, that at the time you sort of justified to yourself as you know, keeping you sharp and you know mm. making sure you're 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 uh, you know you're really on top of your game and and you know you see it very much through the lens of improving the campaigning. I think when I look back, I think uh, a lot of the groups weren't as collaborative as we should have been, in, including ourselves. And and uh, I wish we we had put more time into. Uh, really trying to kind of think through how we could make the different things we were doing add up to mm. a more coherent, integrated campaign. Yeah. Um, but I think that's a lesson that a lot of us learn, unfortunately, um, as, yeah. as we as we gain experience. So you said you said a bit about how you sort of captured the public imagination, and obviously there was sort of fairly entrenched business interests, industrial interests mm. in these chemicals. Um, that you wanted to get rid of. Uh, so could you say a bit about how you dealt with that sort of threat yeah. or you know, how, how difficult that was? And, okay, the, the, I think there are essentially three different bits to it. There's the, 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 the chemicals that are used in uh, products that are accessible to consumer pressure. I think there are the industry users who are reliant on chemicals from ICI and there's the chemical producers and they're each quite separate. So if I start with uh, consumer products, which were essentially uh, 64% of UK uh, CFC use was in aerosols. Um, Everyday non-essential products, which in many cases had already been banned in the US many years ago. Um, In Friends of the Earth initially started what I would call a very positive campaign, 
we decided to assemble lists of aerosols uh, that didn't contain CFCs uh, so that consumers could choose to buy uh, aerosols that we started calling ozone-friendly through positive purchasing power. And the list grew and grew. A massive amount of work for Mick O'Connell, who was a full-time volunteer the whole period of the ozone campaign, um, and was absolutely essential to it. He spent hours going to shops, looking at labels, writing to manufacturers and compiling something called the Aerosol Connection, which was first a big A3 document and then grew into a whole booklet. I think probably Friends of the Earth best ever selling. People were writing in for copies at a pound yeah. each of these booklets. And he was a volunteer. There was no website. Hmm? He was a volunteer. He was a volunteer for years and absolutely crucial to Amazing. every state. I don't think Job Centre Plus would allow it these days, no. uh, sadly. Uh, but somebody, uh, I think the planet can thank for his contribution. Um, really meticulous, careful work. And it was making an impact and there was growing media coverage, but it, it was too slow considering the level of CFC use. It just was too slow. And in February 88, um, the decision was taken to move heavily to a boycott. Uh, we got 100 local groups up and down the country signed up to doing things. Uh, and yes, all the usual stuff, uh, actions planned outside stores and petitions for MPs. And yes, we sent them all aerosol costumes so they could make their own high street aerosol costumes um, and stickers um, to use. And we focused on five manufacturers, uh, the big names, you know, Beecham, Alida Gibbs, L'Oreal and, and our cousins and others, and 20 specific aerosols. And we told the manufacturers we were going to do it. We showed, shared with them all the materials. And a few days before, they caved in and they announced that they would be completely out of, aeros- uh, out of CFCs and aerosols by the end of the year. Um, sting in the tail, they also reported us to the Advertising Standards Authority for our advertisement um, at the time, which was quite interesting because we, uh, we were found against because we couldn't prove the main assertion that we'd made about CFCs actually causing the ozone hole um, because the document we had that proved it had been leaked to us by somebody and we couldn't um, risk providing it as evidence without revealing that we had something and thereby revealing the source. Uh, The next month that information became public so we ran the ad again, this time using a burger box instead of a picture of an aerosol. Um, So that was the British Aerosol Manufacturers Association in conjunction with ICI and ISC Chemicals who lodged that complaint to the ASA. So so they they lodged that complaint. Did you know that they were doing other things to sort of undermine your campaign? Obviously they were speaking in the media, but were they doing sort of things behind the scenes? Did you ever feel under pressure? Oh, I mean, one of the things that will be no surprise to anybody is the extent to which we were getting a constant stream of uh, that job losses would be huge in the UK and internationally. Uh, there were uh, it, there were a hot the, the threat really of the damage that would be done if these chemicals were lost to the economy, to jobs. Uh, we also had a series of newspaper headlines like um, Mum and Tot in Danger uh, Exploding Aerosol Saga, uh, talking about the damage that environmentalists were causing by forcing manufacturers to use flammable aerosol propellants. 
almost at every turn, mm. there were difficult media and blockages um, from people um, in parts of the industry. Um, the other big problem we had was the sheer amount of, of false claims. Um, the, the whole issue took off in a massive way in the public consciousness. The Prince of Wales banned aerosols. Papers were running pictures of Princess Di and Arthur Scargill, the miners' leader, and Edwina Curry, the MP, asking if they were using hairspray or not. It, it, it took off hugely. And companies started uh, quite regularly labelling aerosols ozone-friendly when they weren't. Um, it, often what they were doing was using a chemical called HCFC-22, uh, which was about a 20th of the ozone depletion potential, but was still an ozone depleter. So a lot of what we were doing at this time when there was a massive greening of public consciousness and, and a desire by people to start using their purchasing habits to you know, protect the environment, uh, a lot of what we had to do was report companies, expose them. We spent hours going around shops, literally finding examples of the aerosols. Uh, similarly with another chemical 111-trichloroethane, which nobody had realised was also an ozone depleter, so exposing all of that. Um, bizarrely, one of our best allies was the Daily Mail, which had an incredibly keen uh, environmental reporter. And I think a sign of how deep this had reached into the, uh, the public consciousness was the Daily Mail ran a front-page headline which had just one word, unfriendly and every they didn't need anything else because everybody knew what it meant they yeah. knew it was about a false ozone friendly claim yeah. um, so it was extraordinary as an example of uh, how public pressure over time can really start to uh, really start to take on a lot of the industry action to do with false labeling and so on and, you know, we, we, we did lots of clever things like using footballers to expose free sprays and using Christmas and celebrities to show that Woolworths were still selling uh, silly, spring, uh, silly String, which also contained HCFC 22. Um, it was a very creative, imaginative campaign. But what we were doing the whole time was using particular stories to tell a bigger story. There's this new chemical called HCFC 22 that you may not have mm. heard of but many in the chemical industry are pushing it as a safe alternative, and it's not. There's this other new chemical, 111-trichloroethane. It's got a long, complicated name. It's another chemical you need to know affects ozone depletion. So I think that's what one of our best skills was, really, was finding those imaginative, fun ways of telling complex stories yeah. and undermining what the industry was trying to slide through as an inadequate and only partial reaction mm. to the need to get rid of these chemicals altogether. Great. Okay, we're going to take a short break there. We'll be right back in a moment with Fiona.
Welcome back. We're here with uh, Fiona. We're talking about the ozone layer campaign. And Fiona, you were talking about business. You said a bit about our ICI's role in, in all of this and how you dealt with that. Yes, the, the, the next bit of the campaign really was the long, hard slog to deal with all the industry sectors that weren't as easy for consumers to influence. And here, really, the key player, uh, without doubt, was ICI, which wasn't just uh, providing about 80% of UK CFCs and halons, but uh, was very much a worldwide player. And I think uh, an observation I would make uh, throughout the campaign was that what ICI was predominantly keen to do, and this applied frankly to DuPont and the other chemical companies, was to make sure that the phase-out of the chemicals happened on a timescale that allowed them to develop new alternatives and therefore hang on to their markets and secure future markets. That was essentially what they were each what they were trying to get in place. And I would also say the UK government was uh, not just sympathetic to that, but very actively engaged in that as a key part of its own strategy. Mm. Uh, so you can track over time the extent to which the UK government position dovetails very neatly with ICI's interests. Uh, in fact, there's an excellent International Environment Affairs article that actually tracks that extremely right. carefully. And, uh, this the, was the Thatcher government. It was the Thatcher government. And uh, you have to remember the context at the time. that The UK actually prided itself on uh, being the actor in Europe that took economic realism seriously. Uh, for example, we, we'd been the dirty man of Europe on acid rain for years. Uh, when uh, best available technology became a new thing, the British came up with their own version called best available technology, not entailing excessive cost. Um, you know, uh, I'm afraid we did not have a glorious uh, track record on the environment at the time. So while the UK government was suddenly a convert to the importance of ozone depletion, because, of course, they'd met the international target for reducing CFC use by 50%. They'd met it completely, largely thanks to Friends of the Earth's aerosol boycott, because so many UK CFCs were in aerosols, which they hadn't banned 10 years previously. Mm. Um, so having suddenly become very good at meeting their international targets, and uh, Thatcher herself was got to by some environmentalists who really talked her through the science of both ozone depletion and uh, climate change and she was a chemist by background and she got the science mm. and she really genuinely uh, took up the issue and and very genuinely wanted to do something about it uh, what didn't change really was the doing something about it but in a way that fitted with ICI's industrial strategy and it, it, this was not a phenomena uh, particular just to the UK you, you could similarly see the the US negotiating tactics were were uh, instrumental in the sense that, that they were pushing for things that fitted with their particular situation. Sure. So having already got rid of aerosols, they were keen to see uh, particular specific uses banned. Uh, the UK was much more in the camp of looking for production cuts. Um, 
as we kind of approach this uh, issue of, of going through the industry sectors, something that became very obvious to us was there was a lot of tension between some of the manufacturers using ICI's chemicals and, and ICI themselves. Uh, some of the companies didn't necessarily want to stay with what would be higher priced alternatives in the future. So we had quite a battle to try and demonstrate that there were what we called not-in-kind alternatives. Um, so, for example, that you could use hydrocarbons or you could use um, uh, what were called no-clean technologies uh, for cleaning electronic circuit boards, uh, that you could build you could design a house uh, or a building to not need to be reliant on air conditioning. Mm. Um, and, of course, we argued you didn't need mobile air conditioning, which was something that our US colleagues looked at us as if we were completely and utterly mad to even be able to come out with a sentence like that. Um, so there was a real battle as to what, what were the alternatives and should they move quickly to something that was already available. And in some cases, they weren't brilliant or perfect. They might cause a water pollution problem or a, an air quality problem. So this was a messy arena. There, there weren't lots of simple solutions at all. Um, but we, you know, there, there was a period where we were every week in Plastics and Rubbers Weekly or Urethane Technology or New Builders Merchant. Uh, you know, we, we got the editorials and we got invited to do after dinner speeches. And, you know, and interestingly, we found that by really listening to a lot of the manufacturers in those sectors, we got very valuable insights into what was going on. Uh, we sometimes got leaked documents and interesting bits of information about ICI and it was for me I think a real lesson in don't assume people are not sympathetic sometimes mm. they are they're just genuinely struggling with the way forward um, and you can make allies in lots of different places and I think yeah. we we did make a lot of allies within industry. So when uh, you talk about yeah the, the ability perhaps to exploit or to or to use different bits of industry to to do different things but when you talk about governments who were aligned with industry and then operating at the international level how were you able to uh, or how was the international campaign able to kind of exploit those differences and 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 how did how did that work yes i mean essentially uh what in those days um negotiating forum were much more informal um, and they were generally smaller and you could get to know most of the delegates very well and actually it was much easier to meet a Dutch or a Norwegian Minister of the Environment than it was to meet the UK one and a lot of what we were doing both in negotiations and in um, the media internationally was using the very good um, case studies in countries that were moving faster, so Austria, Germany, you know, Norway, Sweden, Netherlands, the usual suspects, um, had all announced unilateral phase-outs of CFCs by 1995. Right. Uh, the UK was committed to what it called the voluntary approach, i.e. letting industry do it in its own time, in its own way. So a huge amount of what we were doing was trying to persuade both industry and government of actually the commercial disadvantages of going the long, slow way, um, that there were advantages in first mover, uh, being one of the first to build a, an alternative to CFCs and get into that new 
opening market that it wasn't actually helpful for British industry to, to be taking its time and behind the curve on these things. Uh, that's where the Greenpeace um, Green Fridge was very helpful because it was opening up that debate about the fact that there are other alternatives available and other people are starting to move into these much, much faster. Um, So a a lot of what we were doing was that constantly undermining the argument that they couldn't go faster by showing clear evidence that actually there were companies in Denmark doing this and and, and therefore it simply was not the case that they could not go faster. Uh, Could you talk a bit about... um sort of some of the things that went wrong in the campaign or, you know, um, whether there were any sort of tensions within the coalition that you were part of or other things that, you know, perhaps, you know, you didn't plan for, you know, kind of... Yeah, yeah. Gosh, well, there were lots of those, as you'd expect, because campaigners are very passionate people and they care... Uh, very much about getting their tactics right and uh, you can't run control trials to see which tactics are right Um, so uh, Mm. often you will never know if your tactic was the best one or not Uh, so it's no great surprise that a lot of these things were fiercely argued about Um, trying to think through some of the things that that kind of we learned from things that went wrong um, I think one early example that was a one early example I remember was of a fundraising leaflet that Foe had produced uh, that got held up by someone from the US Environmental Protection to an a, a, a agency at a, a conference as an example of exaggerating the science. And I hung my head with shame. Uh, I'd had nothing to do with the leaflet, but. Uh, that didn't make any difference. And at this time, when the science of both ozone depletion and climate change uh, were trying to get established, um, it really was very damaging when environmentalists did exaggerate. There was a group called ARC that talked about you know, Blackpool underwater and put out some phenomenally exaggerated sea level rise stuff at the time. Um, and one of the things that happened was the media started talking about environmentalists and Greens exaggerating. They, they lumped us all together. WWF, Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace were lumped together with some groups that were saying some pretty stupid things. Uh, so that, that, that was an area really that kind of that really did bring home to me. Use the lower end, end of estimates. Really, mm. really focus on don't waste time when you're a campaigner having to argue that you've used the inflated figures rather than the lower end that makes your case perfectly well. Um, we had lots of arguments uh, about targets, really, how quickly you should go for a phase-out, how quickly you should involve different um, chemicals. And I, I think in almost every debate, you will have the people who want a fast, immediate phase-out and the ones who are being more pragmatic. And personally, I think it's a phenomenally healthy dynamic and I would really worry if environmentalists weren't having those kind of, of rounds on a regular basis. Yeah. Um, we Friends of the Earth had a particularly awkward one quite early on over the HCFC-22s that were less yeah. ozone-depleting um, because in a very different context, Friends of the Earth US had, uh, with other major environmental groups, signed uh, a deal with industry, with the, the food packaging industry in the US um, that would that had agreed a phase out timetable uh, 
part of which included uh, them accepting use of HCFC mm. for uh, 22 for a period. And so the question was posed to us as to whether we would similarly accept HCFC 22 yeah. as an acceptable substitute. And we didn't. Uh, we, we had a, an internal row in Friends of the Earth about it, and we came out the other end very clear that actually we would just have to manage a difference of policy with our own sister organisation, um, but that, that we weren't prepared to accept that. Um, there were... It was quite interesting. I was talking a bit about the accuracy of figures earlier. Uh, it's a tricky one, but you, you, you can't afford to expose yourself to uh, companies like ICI. Um, ICI uh, sent us a legal letter uh, when we exposed them on Newsnight for dumping halons, uh, for marketing halons in India. And, uh, you know, it was a pretty serious legal letter saying we'd got something wrong on the press release and that mm. they were going to sue. Mm. Uh, so what did I do other than not, not sleep for the better part of a week? Um, I was saved by my boss, then Andrew Lees, uh, through an extraordinary bit of lateral thinking um, that got us out of it, probably too complicated to explain. Um, and not only did we uh, respond in a way that got us out the hole, because we, we had actually made a mistake and I'd signed off the pre press release and let it through, so it was phenomenally embarrassing. Um, but we went straight back onto the offensive with a piece in the Sunday Times about ICI marketing halons in Argentina. Um, so it was a, a great bit of campaigning, but actually, there was a moment when it was very dangerous. A, a simple slip up on a yeah. press release had, had put us in a very difficult position. Uh, I... other, other things that were difficult, I think I've alluded to, some of the alternatives to CFCs really weren't very great for the environment. Um, yeah. You know, some of them called, were toxic, caused water pollution and other problems. And I, I don't think there are uh, easy answers yeah. for environmentalists in those kind of situations. But, but before, we, uh, before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask you uh, to reflect on how that campaign compares with, you know, I don't want to use the word modern because it makes me sound really old, but <laughs> contemporary campaigns. Um, are there, are, were there differences? Are there differences? Did, you know, you, we talked about the use of a volunteer front and <clears throat> centre of a major yeah. campaign. That might be one, but are there other differences? Do you think basically um, things are you know, more or less the same now. I mean, we live in a very different world. It would be odd if it was the I, I think the things that, that stand out most immediately are just the fact that we're in a digital age and, and this would have been a wonderful campaign to do in the digital age. Um, but in those days, we were spending hours faxing things to journalists. We were mm. writing letters to Kenya and Malaysia. Um it was we were very very reliant on volunteers when we went to international negotiations it, it was quite small you built close mm. relations with people i knew all the ici and other chemical industry people really well mm. um in one technical panel meeting i observed it was clear that all the delegates had been told hcfc 22 um was fine to use because it was only being used in strictly essential uh, purposes, um, uh, not for anything non-essential, and so it was a useful bridging chemical. I went out, went round the shops in Geneva, bought a series of aerosols, 
um, came in the next morning and put them on the delegates' desks so they could see aerosol cans with HCFC yeah. 22, both labelled ozone-friendly and in a non-essential purpose. I mean, mm. these days you couldn't get past security no. with a large <laughs> bag of aerosols, uh, let alone be allowed to put them on the delegates' desks. Suppose, so in, yeah. in, 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 that, in that sort of very simple, it, it was a very old-fashioned world, but if you say to me... As a campaign, in what way is it different? We, we had all the same barriers that you see today for, for, for climate change. Um, so, you know, uh, proving the problem, that the, the science stands up, that there really is a problem that, that's got to be addressed. Um, uh, the whole dilemmas about whether you um, take an insider, getting inside the tent uh, perspective or whether you're critical from the outside, um, or what I personally always maintain, that you can actually do both. Do both um, yeah. If you decide you are going to do both, mm-hmm. and you plan it so you can carry both off. Um, the communications messages, uh, finding very simple ways of communicating complex problems and repeating and repeating and repeating them, but no campaign can work without that um, and it has really, really scuppered a lot of the climate change activity. Um, building alliances, including with unusual suspects, and not assuming that you can't work with chemical industry, you know, manufacturers, civil servants, conservatives, you know, in, in each of those constituent... And I do get very angry at campaign groups uh, in, in the situation where we've had a Conservative government for years yeah. who aren't getting in there and talking to MPs and ministers and, and really engaging. Yeah. Uh, you may not get the big breakthroughs with somebody who's quite far from you, but if you understand their perspective and what they're trying to do, you can certainly get very important changes at the margins while you continue to publicly campaign for the much bigger changes. And the ones at the margins are important and they head you in the right direction. So they're always worth going for. Uh, uh, Unfortunately, and that's that's a great, great sort of summary of lessons there at the end there, but unfortunately we have to stop now. But thank you so much for your time today, Fiona. Thank you.